You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeing to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and projects. And today we've got a kind of a different show on. I guess was a bit surprised, I think, when I sent him an email asking that come on because I'm not really an apologist. I said, yeah, I, I get that's not your focus, but I think what you have here is something that we could all use because in our work here, just like in most in any area of ministry, there's a striving to do the best that you can. And especially with so much competition out there in session, you want to stand out. You want to do all you can. Hey, you're doing this for God anyway. So it doesn't require your full effort. And lo and behold, somehow you experience burnout and you wonder what happened. Now, I can say when I started doing this work, I debated pretty often on theology web. I still have a special place there. It's uh, my own deeper water section. But yet somehow early on made a decision. I'm not going to do any debating on Sundays. I'm just going to take a break. I mean, I might listen to some podcasts or something like that, but I'm not going to debate. And I've kept that up. If you watch me on Facebook, you know, unless it's an emergency, I don't post on Sundays. I've kept that up. It's not because of some big rule about being legalistic of the Sabbath. because I need a break. And that's what my guest is saying. He's the author of The Radical Pursuit of Rest. His name is John Kessler. He serves as chair and professor in the Division Applied Theology and Church Ministry at Moody Bible Institute, where he has been a member of the faculty since 94. He is an award-winning author who has written 10 books, including The Radical Pursuit of Rest, Escaping from Productivity Trap, which is by InterVarsity, came out this year. The surprising grace of disappointment, finding hope when God seems to fail us, faulty grace and power of mysterious art of preaching, and true discipleship, the art of following Jesus. He has contributed articles to Christianity Today, Mature Living, Leadership Journal, Discipleship Journal, Decision, and Moody Magazine. He also writes a monthly column for Today in the Word entitled Theology Matters and is a regular contributor to that publication's devotionals. Prior to joining the faculty of Moody, John was pastor of Valley Chapel in Green Valley, Illinois, for nine years. So, Dr. Kessler, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be with you. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, uh, it's, uh, it's a long story. I, don't, I can't take the whole story, but it was actually, I was a, a pastor for nine years in central Illinois, and through a kind of a surprising set of events, uh, was invited to join the faculty at Moody in uh, 1994. Um, it was something that I always had sort of dreamed of doing. I actually originally wanted to be a, studi- a student at Moody uh, uh, years ago, but they rejected my application. So so I got the best of both worlds now. I get to be there, but now they have to pay me. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, 
when I got your book, I, I was so intrigued because there is such a thing as a productivity trap. And we want to be doing as much as we can. When I had a party Ordway on my show recently, we talked about this because there was a, my wife and I watched a video with somebody talking about a popular game franchise, everyone playing out of their phones and such. And said, you know, all you are doing this game and such, while you're doing it, you could be doing evangelism. This <laughs> is what I'm doing. And yeah. I thought that sounds so good and spiritual, but that, if you took it to its logical conclusion, would lead to chaos. I mean, yeah, I could take my wife out on a date, but I could be doing evangelism. I could be exercising and having a healthy body, but I could be doing evangelism. I could be studying or I could be eating a meal. I could be sleeping, but I could be doing evangelism. It's a real trap, isn't it? I think it is. And I think you're describing there is the tension that that all of us feel in trying to decide how we are going to invest ourselves. Mm -hmm. We want to serve Christ. We want to do things with excellence for him. But we can't do everything. And sometimes, you know, it's kind of good to do nothing, which we often feel guilty about. And I, it's not just a matter, I don't think it's just a matter of personal guilt. I, I think there is a cultural emphasis on it. There's an emphasis in the culture at large on, on producing. You know, we often uh, get a sense of our value based on what we do and how much we do and and I think that's crept into the life of the church in the same way. Mm-hmm. Now, let's uh, get some clarification in terms. The book is called The Radical Pursuit of Rest. What do we mean by rest? Do we mean just go take a nap or go to sleep often, or is it more than that? Yeah, it's, it is much more than that, although for some of us that might be the best strategy, you know, just go take a nap. It's, it's really grounded in the, this fundamental promise that Christ makes in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's really a remarkable promise on the one hand that, that Christ, as he is inviting us into relationship with him, he is inviting us into rest. And it's also remarkable when he connects this rest to what he calls the yoke, because in Jesus' day, the yoke was an implement of work. Right. The yoke is what was put over the, uh, a beast of burden, you know, to help that animal carry the load. So clearly in Jesus' promise, there's more going on here than him just telling us that he's to take a break or he's going to give us a break. And I think the promise of rest is tied into this theme that you see running through all of Scripture, where God is the one who uh, uh, provides us with rest, which ultimately, you know, when you trace it through the Scripture, ultimately that rest is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. And you and I were talking before the show started, since you're up around the Chicago area, I mentioned John Barton of Wheaton, and he's one who's written a lot about the Genesis account. And in the Genesis account, we find God himself rest. Yes, isn't that amazing? And, and you have to ask, you know, you have to ask yourself, why in Scripture do you find that? Because you might be tempted to think of it as sort of a, a some kind of a, a, a mythological 
depiction of God, you know, God like the ancient gods, mm-hmm. that certainly doesn't square with the portrait of God that we find in Scripture in general, that God is one who never sleeps and never slumbers. He's someone who never becomes weary. And at the same time, if, we, if we're going to take uh, the statement of Scripture at face value, this statement of God resting, it, there's something more to it than merely symbolic, so that when the biblical text asserts that God rests, it means exactly what it says. So what is that? And I, and I think what you have is, first of all, uh, where God's rest is concerned, it's not that God worked himself into a state of exhaustion and then he needed to take a break. It's the language of completion, that God completed everything, and that what is now being worked out, particularly in terms of our uh, experience and our redemption, is the finished work of God. I think if we were going with Barton's analogy, he uses about building a home, we could say God is the builder of a home, and then when the builder of a home completes, he rests, he goes into the house and just kind of kicks his feet off, gets a drink or something and says, now I can relax. I've finished my work. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, what what you see then is that what God, the work that God does in the present brings that which God purposed in eternity past into the realm of our own experience. So as far as God's purpose is concerned, the work is already finished. Viewed from the perspective of our experience, it's you, it's new or or something that even hasn't been accomplished yet. So it really makes God's rest the fountainhead of all rest. And when I debate a lot of atheists and such, when we talk about the Old Testament, I always stress how important it is to go to the Old Testament culture and realize what life was like back then. And that gets especially poignant when you think about how they were told to rest on the seventh day. Yeah. Because, I mean, in our day and age, if I need food, I drive down to the store, I pull out my card, I get, I show it to them, I swipe it from the machine, I get what I want, I could be taken care of for a week or so. Not so back then, you had to go out and work every day and there was no refrigeration system or anything to keep your food from spoiling to that extent. And yet they were told, don't work on this day. Yes, and you can really see how countercultural that was for them. And when you uh, look at the, the the biblical word that's used there is this practice of Sabbath, that Sabbath in the in the Old Testament is more than a spiritual discipline, and it's more than a day uh, of rest. In the Law of Moses, actually, the Sabbath was a moral and a social obligation. It's something that uh, forced God's people to be acutely aware, first of all, of their own weak faith, because, as, as you say, when they are required to rest, God is actually inviting them to cease from the things that they normally have to do in order to provide for themselves. Mm-hmm. And you don't just have it happening on the day of rest. You even have you have entire uh, uh, seasons where they're required to that. For example, the year of Jubilee mm-hmm. in Leviticus 25.20 you have this question put in the mouths of God's people. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? And God's answer to that is, I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. I mean, it's it's amazing. Mm -hmm. It is 
I think actually something that we hear echoed in the New Testament when Jesus is urging his disciples to seek the kingdom in Matthew 6, 31 through 33, where Jesus says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? I think he's echoing that question from Leviticus. He says, for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows what you need, that, that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So that in, in both cases, what is being asked is a, a kind of a faith, a concretized faith, faith put into practice where we are relying upon God to look out for our interests and to take care of our needs. One of the first things I highlighted in your book was talking about how the pastor urges the congregation towards greater exertion, as you said, and all the things they do. And uh, one part I highlight specifically is they spend their vacation doing short-term ministry. Yeah. Now, I got married a little over six years ago. And when we were getting ready for a honeymoon, it was like I've said before, girls plan the weddings, guys plan the honeymoons. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, got, I talked to her parents and my parents and said, we're going to be at Ocean Out Beach. We're going to be there for a week. Unless it is an emergency, do not call us. Do not get in touch with us. Let us be for that time. And for books, the only book I brought with me was my Bible. For Bible reading that night, we actually did miss church that Sunday. I think the pastor understood. And we went there, and I, I even said, for me, no Facebook no email. The only reason I'm using my smartphone is to check GPS and things like that and find areas nearby where we can go look around and such. And I've got a friend about to get married and saying, I'm going to tell him the exact same thing. I know you want to put up pictures from your wedding and such. There will be plenty of time to do that later. For now, take a break. Don't you don't bring your academic books for studying and such. Just take a break and enjoy each other because this is you only get one first week of your marriage. Yes, you know, I've, I need to make it clear that um, I'm not against short-term, <laughs> short-term ministry or short-term missions. That's it's it's really this sense this sense that you get in uh, uh, the contemporary church that if you're not doing something, particularly if you're not doing something for the church, you don't really have any value. And I think it it's based on this underlying assumption about a relationship we have with God and the whole nature of the Christian life, which says that busier is better, Mm -hmm. which I think is in turn based on a supposition that devotion equals activity. Uh, I think there's a trap here. That is, if we're thinking that the more we love Christ, the more we'll do for him, then those who love Christ the most, whether it's churches or individuals, are going to do the most. But the trap is that if if that's true, and since your devotion to Christ should know no bounds, then neither should your activity, which means that no matter what you're doing now, you should be doing more. No matter what you've done in the past, it doesn't really count. And the result is then you get this culture of drivenness in the church where we are all constantly trying to exceed the current level of the activity, whatever it is. If if we've got a certain level of attendance and if it's increased, well, we got to increase it further. If our programs have expanded, then they have to expand even more. And so that the church is under tremendous pressure 
to keep expanding what it's doing. And of course, the way that it has to do that, in a sense, is through the church's members. Mm -hmm. So that the church, and you know, often the church is very much like a corporation driven by the bottom line. So that um, I think for those of us who are serving in the church, you know, we, we feel that pressure. And in addition to that, what adds to it is a, a failure to recognize pretty, pretty much everything outside of the church as legitimate service to Christ. So that ministry becomes very narrowly defined. You know, it's ministry is serving in the nursery. Ministry is teaching Sunday school or vacation Bible school. Ministry is going on short-term missions. But somebody who's a teacher and serving in the public school system, for example, well, that doesn't really count. Or somebody who's, who is uh, working in a factory and bearing witness to the people that he or she is working with, that doesn't really count for ministry. So it results in a very uh, uh, compartmentalized approach to what it means to do to serve Christ. Yeah, I agree with you. There's nothing wrong with short-term mission trips and such. But at the same time, we don't need to guilt people if, if they go on vacation right. and such. It should be a vacation. Just right. That, um, <laughs> of course, I'm not saying that if you're out on vacation, someone comes up to you and says, I'm really struggling. I need to know how to become a Christian. Can you please help me? And he's like, sorry, I'm on vacation. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would not be a good approach. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, it's kind of like, I'm thinking we need to find what Aristotle would call the golden mean, because we want to, there's a one, on one hand of saying, do everything you can do because you know, there's one more soul out there that needs to hear the gospel. And then on the other hand, there's complete laziness saying, well, someone else can handle that. Yeah. I, I definitely think when it comes to evangelism and the, the work of apologetics, that you really have to have a sense of what God is doing in it. And uh, I think our tradition in the, evangelical, uh, in the evangelical history is to place a tremendous amount of weight on the responsibility of the believer in it. I, I, I frankly think that's largely due to the emphasis of Charles Finney in uh, revivalism, so that I feel all the weight in it, and it's easy for me to forget, to forget that God is really the one who's gone before, that he's the one who sent the gospel into the world. The Holy Spirit is at work. You know, God is revealing himself in creation as a whole to sort of prepare the ground. The Holy Spirit is at work, working in conviction, and that I'm sort of just kind of coming in afterwards to to uh, uh, present the gospel and to either sow the seed or reap the fruit that God has already produced so that the, the most of the weight of the responsibility actually rests with God. It doesn't rest with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking, in fact, there's a, see what you think there's a saying that's been attributed to St. Augustine, which was a work as if everything depended on you, pray as if everything depended on God. Yeah, I you know I, I I see the I see the sense of that. I think that um, you know I think it's easy, better to say work as if everything depended on God. You're still working, but you're really relying on God's strength, God's grace. Um, it, it doesn't 
it doesn't remove any responsibility that I have to make an effort, to plan, to, to strategize. But it recognizes that the battle really is the Lord's. And the more I take that weight on myself, I think the more exhausted I become, the more frantic I feel, and uh, the more discouraged I become when things don't, when I don't see the level of success that I would like. If, on the other hand, that I, I am recognizing that the weight and the responsibility really responsibility really belong to God, then I, you know, really I'm merely uh, His servant, and you know I'm relying on His power to be whatever to play whatever part I have in this process. Because when when it comes to sharing the faith, we're not all just we're not all harvesting. You know, we are sowing the seed. Sometimes our role is to be rejected. That's that's part of what God's doing at that point is for me to put the gospel out there or for people to reject it. You know, I'm I'm trying to shift the weight on God when I'm talking about these things to people. I'm remembering years ago I used to do debate on Power Talk, also a voice chat program and such. And there was a pretty well-known apologist who was on there and I got on one day and I heard him answering a question and he was coughing all throughout. So I've got a sore throat here and such. I'm trying to imitate what he was doing and such. And I was saying, this is ridiculous. And I sent him a message and said, sign off and go rest. Yeah. Uh said, said, truth must be defended. And I responded, yes, truth must be defended. I agree. But you're not the only one doing it. Right. And you're not able to do it. You need to be able to count on the rest of us that we will take up the slack, which is, in fact, the same advice I give to guys when they get married and this field, they're going out on their honeymoons or whatever. We say, look, the world will be fine without you for a week. No yeah, one else right. can be with your wife like that. But you go out and leave the rest of the world to everyone else because if you don't, in essence, it's a form of pride. It is. It is. And it's... it. There is a, a what, what you're really saying is not just, you know, to rely on the rest of us ultimately is is to rely on God and the fact that he has he really has sent the church into the world. And um, I think, you know, sometimes we lose our confidence in the church. Frankly, I think in terms of evangelicals today, we've lost confidence in the gospel that we're we are uncomfortable with its emphasis on the spiritual and its emphasis on Christ and on, we want something more concrete, you know, we want something that nets out in some kind of uh, uh, political change or cultural change. And so we take more and more responsibility to ourselves and we forget God, we forget that that God is working through other agents. You know, there's a whole church that he sent into the world. Again, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate this. I realize that um, we have a responsibility to share the faith. And I'm I'm not saying, you know, if you're out there telling people about Jesus, just forget about it. Don't worry about it. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm also thinking about that. I've been doing apologetics since about 2000 or 2001. But when I married, I married the daughter of a very well-known apologist, as most listeners of this show know, who's a New Testament scholar. And when we started getting together, I mean, I was pretty surprised to see in many ways, this is someone who's very much 
like me. I mean, they have their favorite TV shows they watch. Yeah. We've gone out to a Braves game together and such. And I've had this attitude that all these guys in ministry and such, all they do is spend all their time studying and such. And that's not the case. No, I, re- I remember a friend of mine in seminary. Uh, when when I was in seminary, he he went out and uh, uh, visited a, a well known. He happened to run into a well known pastor, who uh, you know he had written a number of books and and he just happened to stop come by his house when he was moving a washing machine down into his basement, and my friend was just sort of astonished. You know, here's this guy. He's written all these books. He's a, a notable pastor and preacher, and he's moving a washing machine. Well, that's it. That's you know, yeah. we're just we're just we're all just ordinary people that God uses, and most of what we do in terms of in terms of serving Christ and in terms of bearing witness for Christ, most of that happens within the context of the ordinary. You know, it's when we're just at our job or we're in the neighborhood or we're we're uh, socializing with friends. It's really not uh, generally done in the context of large meetings and revivals and those things have their place. But, you know, most of us, most of the serving and following Christ that we do is in the context of everyday, boring, ordinary life. Mm-hmm. Now in this book, also you talk some about anxiety, which would go very well with Matthew six and I'm not sure how much we need to hear about right now because, I mean, we're, here we are in the middle of an election year, and I don't know anyone who's anxious whatsoever about what's going to happen here. So, I, mean, I think everybody is, right? So do, do we really need to discuss that? Well, just, just to say, first of all, uh, you know, when Jesus talks about anxiety to his disciples, um, when he tells us to be anxious for nothing— there is an assumption that anxiety is a common experience among those who follow Christ. And there are so many, there are so many statements in scripture. You see it, you see it reflected in the Psalms. There are so many statements which affirm the reality of the experience of anxiety. So that, you know, on the one hand, I don't think we need to feel this overwhelming burden of guilt when it comes up, but the basic message is that what happens when I am struggling with this anxiety is I really kind of forget my identity. I forget the fact that I have a father in heaven who knows what I need before I ask him. I have a father in heaven who has really does have overarching control over the things that are going on. He's not the he is certainly not the primary agent in, of evil in the world. And that's, that's why when we look at things like the election, we become anxious about who's, you know, who's going to uh, uh, be exercising this responsibility of rule because not everybody is making good choices. But whatever the outcome is, I know what the Bible tells me is ultimately going to be happening, that God they're not going to be able to thwart God's ultimate plan, God's ultimate purpose. And uh, the Bible's, you know, very clear that he's the one who sets up rulers and casts them down. So I can act responsibility, responsibly as a citizen. You know, I can make my decision, and then I really have to trust God for the outcome. 
I, I do like how in your book somewhere, I think you state that uh, you're, you're writing about this, but it, don't assume you've reached mastery yet either, because there are still nights that many of us can go to sleep at night and we'll be anxious about something. And let's just say we can have those sleepless nights going on. Yes, right. And, and of course, I write, I think like many other people, you know, I write out of my own personal struggle, whatever it is that I happen to be working through. And, uh, you know, honestly, you know, anxiety has been a, a core issue in my life. And I, you know, nighttime seems to be the time when uh, it really comes to the surface for many of us, perhaps because we use the busyness of the day to distract ourselves from the things that we worry about. And when we lay down at night, we don't have that distraction and all of these uh, uh, things that concern us creep in. And um, so that I have to repeatedly remind myself of both uh, uh, who God is, how he has worked in the past and of the responsibility I have to cast my cares on him. And it's not a magic bullet. You know, it's not like, yeah, if you just, if you just do these three, four things, uh, memorize these verses, all your worry will go away. You know, I think those of us who are prone to worry, uh, it will be something that we wrestle with all our lives. Mm. But what we will find is that God will consistently show himself to be faithful. You know, when you talk about, about God's in charge and such, I remember a reference thing C.S. Lewis said better. We don't really doubt that God is going to be in control of all things, that God is working for our good. Our main concern is how painful is that going to be for us? That's right. There? I can look at the election and say, yeah, God, you're in control. You're going to make sure I'm taken care of in the long run. But, you know, you might put me through a whole lot of suffering here on earth, and that terrifies yeah. me. Yeah, well, that, I think that's true. Not just on this, you know, the global level of these big decisions like elections. I think that's true on the very personal level. Whenever I'm praying, my struggle in prayer is not that I don't believe that God can do what I'm asking him to do. I'm convinced that he can do whatever I ask him to do. Mm-hmm. What my struggle is that I'm not sure he's going to do it for me. Yeah. You know, because and and that's not an unreasonable concern because past experience has shown me that there are many things where I have asked him, you know, I've asked him to act in a certain way or bring something to pass, and the answer has been no. And then I have to live with whatever the reality is of that disappointment. That is, you know, that's part of the hard lesson of, uh, you know, of God's goodness goodness to me in disappointment. That's one of the books you mentioned that I'd written is The Surprising Grace of Disappointment. That's really what I'm talking about there, that that one of the best things that God can do for us sometimes is to not give us what we want or to answer our prayer differently. But that's a, that becomes really one of the, actually, I, I think that becomes one of the core questions that people ask in apologetics, because we do sort of want to think about God like the genie, you know, right. that if he's all powerful, then he becomes, instead of us, instead of our being his servants, he kind of becomes a servant to us. And uh, we quickly find that he won't play that game, that he cares for us. He answers our prayers, but he answers them in the way that works for his glory and our good, not necessarily the way that we would frame that answer to be. Yeah. I I often find amusing when I talk to people about the problem of evil. I say, well, if I were God, 
this is what I would do. I mean, as soon as I start saying, if I were God, I'm going to say, step back. You don't have a clue because unless you possess all knowledge of all future and such, you can't even begin to talk that way. Yes. Well, and actually, you know, if you just look at our own lives, you know, some of us can't even balance our checkbook. So Mm -hmm. uh, there's plenty of evidence for the ordinary person that living my own small life is challenging enough. If I were to take on the burden of the universe, it would really be a mistake. Yeah. Uh, I think a humorous look at that could be if we consider the movie Bruce Almighty. Yeah, yes, just, right. And so all prayers, yes, and chaos yeah. came out yeah. of that. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was a cute movie. Yeah. Now, and a good point. That was yeah. exactly the point. You're right. Yeah. And by the way, keep in mind, people, this means it's also okay to go see a movie every now and then. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're trying to, uh, uh, if you're trying to speak to the culture today, if you're trying to relate gospel truth, you know, uh, both the two areas where you really have an opportunity to analyze cultural values are in films you know, which is today's version of the campfire that the tribe all sat around and told stories to one another. You know, we do that both in television and in the, the in the movie theater. And I think television commercials are really often indicative of uh, the values that are driving us as a culture, because there you have people putting millions of dollars and research into understanding what it is that drives people, what it is that moves them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a good, it's a good way to do cultural exegesis. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think I'm going to use that from now on. Someone says to me, "If I'm watching TV, should you be studying?" I am. I'm doing research. Yes. Wait for commercials. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Tell my. I say I'm. I'm doing cultural exegesis. Yeah. <laughs> now I do appreciate how you spoke about prayer in here. And I mean, first off, let's go with what you were just saying. That sometimes we don't always get what we want when we ask because there was kind of a fine line here we want to ask in faith and confidence that god will give but at the same time we don't want to be the name it claim it types yes and um there is a sort of a competing tension that you face both in what we teach about prayer and in our experience of prayer because Obviously, the the theology of prayer is grounded in this assumption that God is God is actively engaged in the world today. That He is not just this sort of empty being or or power, you know that He that that He responds not just to my request, but in a very personal way. And also, there's an assumption in prayer of his power. So we're, you know, what are the things I'm praying for? Well, I'm usually praying for things which would require God to act in a way that goes beyond the natural, right? He's or or go beyond just ordinary means. So so there's a huge promise, uh, a huge theological promise in the practice of prayer. That is intention on the other hand, with the rea- the real experience of most of us when it comes to prayer in that it really is, it doesn't work like a, a you know, a, a vending machine where I just put sort of put the coin in the machine or nowadays it would be the dollar. I put the dollar in the machine and then I get what, what I want that God just, and it really points to the, the personal nature of God that, 
just as I make my request, he interacts with me in a relational way, in a personal way. He doesn't just give me what I ask. He responds according to his knowledge of what I need. Mm -hmm. So that, but in experience, then that creates a little bit of tension when things don't turn out maybe the way that I want them to. When either there's delay, I pray for something and it doesn't come immediately, or the answer is no, or if the answer is yes, it comes to me in a form that I didn't expect. So it actually does point, our experience with prayer points to the real personal nature uh, of God. Yeah, I often like to point this uh, kind of way of thinking we have when we don't get what we want and such, I have a story of my wife that I think is a great example. There was a time in her life that she was really wanting to date this guy, and then he just lost all interest in her. He didn't care whatsoever. And she ended up having a suicide attempt with an overdose. And you you can imagine, if you're willing to do something, that must be something you are really hoping for and praying for. And even if she got there, she wanted to... uh, to try and get things right with this guy still. And except around that time, some other guy showed up there and where she didn't really care too much for him. Um, but, you know, he was a good listener, someone who's good for her. And where well, we've been married a little over six <laughs> years now. So. There you go. That's right. Well, and that's, uh, you know, that's the big picture, isn't it, that, that we struggle with, that God has a larger view uh, when he's relating to us. There's one of my favorite preachers is Helmut Thielich, uh, who was a, a Lutheran pastor who preached during the, you know, he, one of one of the series of sermons that he preached is a series on the Lord's Prayer that he preached during the bombing of Stuttgart uh, at the, during the collapse of the Nazi regime. And he, he says some wonder, wonderful things about prayer. And uh, he quotes another pastor who, who says that uh, sometimes we relate to God as if uh, like children who are interested in the pennies that he gives us, but not in the hand, you know, that gives them that. uh, And Tilica points out that surely we certainly we want to remember the hand. We don't want to just look at the things that God gives us. We want to cling to the hand of God but the pennies are not insignificant. <laughs> you know, the things that we ask for, that's why Jesus, when he tells us in that uh, promise, he says, your father knows that you have need of all these things. That's why we can trust him when we're asking in prayer. That's why we can be bold in making our request. That's why there's no request that's too small, too insignificant for God. And I think you know, I, I think the liberty of prayer is that I can ask for anything that falls within the framework of God's revealed will and then trust the outcome to him. I don't have to worry about it, you know, and uh, I might, you know, I might. It doesn't mean that he's going to give me everything I ask for, but I can be fully confident that I can disclose my heart to him. I can disclose my desires to him and I know he's going to act in my best interest. I like also how candid you are. That's something I really like when I read a book is to see how candid the author is about themselves because you admit that prayer is a difficult area for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I 
I have to say, my wife, she is a much better prayer warrior than I uh, am. For me, it's like, I'll go out there and I'll do my prayer and look up and say, like, well, it's been only two or three minutes. Wow. It yeah, mine, that long. <laughs> mine too. My, my wife is a better person to prayer than I am. And I, I think some of this is, um, uh, you know, over the years, I've I've come to the conclusion that some of this is uh, personality driven. That is, you know, there are certain models of prayer that become normalized in our Christian experience so that the ideal becomes a certain either method of prayer or time of prayer. You know, so here's a there's a certain person, there's a kind of person who they get up in the morning, they can get up. In fact, I have, a co- I have a colleague, he comes to work, he's probably at work around four o'clock in the morning. He's in his office, you know, he's praying and he, and he really fits that ideal model. Mm-hmm. For me, uh, what I find is that my prayer life is more a matter of r- a running conversation with God. It's kind of like the difference between, uh, uh, say, uh, somebody like Brother Lawrence, you know, who is, who found that, in the in his practice of the presence of God, as he was just going about his ordinary business, washing dishes, working in the kitchen, being aware of the reality of God's presence in his normal activity, that was that was not any less intimate to him than the stated times of prayer that he had as a monk. And uh, I think there are certain people who really respond well to a very structured way of praying. And there are others who, you know, they're, they're going to relate to God more in terms of running conversation. And I honestly don't know anybody who feels good about their prayer life. Everybody I know feels like it needs work, you know, at Jesus disciples. That's why they asked him to uh, teach them how to pray. And he, you know, he teaches them this very brief, uh, the Lord's prayer. When you think about how concise the Lord's Prayer is that, uh, and in fact, many of the prayers that you see in Scripture are fairly concise. So uh, I, we're all in, we're all students in that area. Yeah, uh, something that's helped me also. And by the way, I'm also a stream of consciousness prayer taught me. One of the things I can say, for instance, is if I'm going down the road and I see a police officer or an ambulance or a fire engine or a siren going and such, I say a quick minute prayer. Definitely don't yeah. close my eyes at that point. Yeah, That's yeah. a quick minute prayer for whatever was going on and such. But one thing that's helped me is I have someone who agreed to be a mentor, as it were, for me. And every night after I get done praying, I'll send him an email and I'll tell him and then I'll let him know a little bit about how my day's gone and such and he tells me he always reads them, and I believe he does. Sometimes he gives a little response, a little bit of advice and such. Sometimes I listen. Sometimes I think that's good. I just don't really agree. But it's really good to have a mentor figure. And I would really encourage everyone out there, try and get a mentor. Yeah, yeah. You know, talking about prayer, too, I think um, that the different the different kinds of personality, there are there's a great tradition in um, the Christian faith of 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 um, written prayers, of repeating the prayers that others have prayed or have written down. That basically, you know, that's what the Book of Psalms is, right? It's it's not just a book of songs; it is a book of worship, but it's also a book of prayers. 
that God's people have repeated. And that's helpful for somebody like me who tends to get bored with my own prayers, uh, you know, where I can I can allow other people to frame my language for me and pray after them, pray that to God. Now, for other people, that just doesn't work for them, often because they come out of traditions where that was dead to them. It was just sort of rote praying. But for, so I think there, there are a variety of strategies, that methodologies that, that enable us to uh, approach God that are helpful. Yeah. Well, something else that you have in that chapter, it's a chapter about sloth as well. And this is an experience between you and I are friends on Facebook. But I, I think this is an experience that no one else out there could relate to. But that you just sit down and you turn on Facebook and say, yeah, I'll look down for about five minutes or so, and then I'll go and do something else. And then you find about an hour's pass, and you've just been browsing your feed trying to find something interesting. I, I suspect I'm the only person who really goes through anything like that. No, I don't think you are. And, you know, sloth is a... Uh, um Sloth is an old word. We don't really hear much about it. I can't. I can't think I've ever um, heard a sermon about it. Although there have been in, in recent days, actually, I think more and more people have started to write about it. Uh, you might think of sloth as I like to call it rests dysfunctional relative. In fact, sloth is very different from rest, both in terms of the way it works or and and its effect. So. You know, rest refreshes us. Sloth actually drains our vitality. It depletes our energy. Rest is a remedy. Sloth does injury to us, according to the scriptures. And the Hebrew word for sloth conveys the idea of laxness or slackness. So sloth essentially is a sin of omission. It's a failure to do what you should be doing. It's a failure to do what's required of you, good or right. And that's why I in my own experience, when I'm looking to see where sloth uh, shows up, honestly, it does show up for me with social media because I find that it becomes a very convenient way to get me out from under the thing I should be doing, which for me is usually grading papers. <laughs> you know, So when I'm grading papers and I start to get weary of it, there is just this sort of compulsion like, oh, I wonder if anybody's emailed me. I wonder what's going on Facebook. Before you know it, you know, 30 minutes, an hour is gone that I really could have been used doing something else. And I'm not I'm not saying that um, we shouldn't be using social media, but there are a number of ways that we can uh, distract ourselves from doing the thing that we ought to be doing. And actually, that's, this is where rest comes in. Sometimes the way we distract ourselves is with busyness. It's the opposite. That, that, so that this sort of over-agitated kind of um, engagement in the wrong thing becomes uh, a distraction from the, the thing that God has placed in front of me to do that seems too boring and that's why I, one of the things I sort of have wondered is the church's over uh, the church's emphasis on vision and uh, you know doing great something great uh, this pressure we feel to do something extreme for God if that isn't sometimes an exercise in sloth uh, that we're instead of attending to the ordinary bread and butter. 
mission that God has put in front of us, we want to do something different from that, something that's more exciting. Yeah, and I I think I've noticed over years that, you know, I think when I started out on projects, it was an eager thing to go out and answer every single question that you could. And now I prefer a kind of approach taking it's kind of like called the Kung Fu master approach, as it were, where you don't enter in every single battle just because you feel provoked or such. But if you do enter in battle, you make sure you're going to win. Because if I went through my Facebook feed and I commented on every single post, I think I could do a good job in the debate in. I would be spending all my time on Facebook and I do not want to be doing that. <laughs> I think that's a good strategy, too, when it comes to ministry, that one of the decisions uh, churches have to make is that they have to make choices about where they're going to invest themselves. And there's a, a mentality that's common, which says, you know, if the, that the need the, the opportunity in front of me, the need in front of me is the call from God. Well, the reality is there are far more opportunities. There are far more needs than I really have the resources to meet. That's true of me as an individual. I think that's true in the life of the church so that both as an individual follower of Christ and as a church that's seeking to be on mission for God, I have to make decisions about what is the most strategic way for me to invest myself, which means there are going to be some things that I'm going to do and some things I'm not going to do. And those things that are genuine needs that I am not going to be able to invest myself in, I really have to trust that God has other resources. God has other means to take care of that. It's like the, it's like the uh, apostles in uh, Acts 6, you know, when they were told that the one group of widows, the, the uh, Grecian widows, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food by another, by the, the Hebraic widows. You know, it was, a, it was really an ethnic uh, conflict, a cultural conflict. And like any church situation, the uh, disciples come, you know, the church comes to them and basically comes to the leaders and say, they say, you take care of this. And their response is, wouldn't be reasonable for us to do this. They're not saying that the problem was a small one. In fact, you can see that it's actually a pretty significant one because this is this is really the first shot over the bow of the church's the tension the church is going to experience as the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. But the the, the apostles recognize that they have to make decisions about where they're going to invest themselves and take priority, and they then choose the seven uh, who they have standards for it, they're qualified for it, and they hand that ministry over to them. I think every church and we as believers have to make those kinds of decisions. I was thinking another example of that was uh, Moses and Jethro in the Old Testament, where Moses was trying to answer all the questions and such. And Jethro said, you're going to burn yourself out. Yeah, that's right. Now, you also talk some in the book about ambition, and I think this is an important one to touch on as well, because honestly, I think everyone in ministry to some capacity has some ambition. Yes, every everybody does, and I think particularly, uh, um, you know, we live in an age where many of us have been told all of our lives that we can be whatever we want to be 
as long as we are sincere and we try hard enough. And of course, the first thing I have to come to terms with is uh, that's not really true. I, I talk about in the book about a radio advertisement that I heard uh, when I was driving to work one day. And uh, the ta- it was actually for a Christian university that was promoting its program of studies of radio and television. And the tagline for the commercial was, be famous for God. And I had this visceral reaction. At first, I was really turned off by it. You know, I was really, uh, I thought, wow, that, that just doesn't seem right. And then the very next thought was like, well, you know, you, you write books, you could be famous. And I realized that, that in my own life, I have this, this struggle when it comes to ambition. I don't really know what to do with it. You know, should I, should I just yield to it and uh, give into it or should I hide it? So most of the time in my own life, I try to hide it. You know, somebody gives me a compliment. I try to deflect it. If I achieve a success of some kind, I try not to make a big deal about it. But the fact is, when things when I don't feel like I'm achieving the level of success that I want to, I feel bad about it. And then I feel bad about feeling bad about it. And I think that uh, I really have to, all of us really have to have a sense of God's calling that, first of all, to recognize that there is a place for ambition in the Christian life. Ambition is simply, it's just a mode of desire and desire is a normal thing. And there are plenty of areas of life where ambition is helpful. For example, when ambition is driving us on the athletic field or when it drives us in our work and business or in, even in the arts, ambition can energize us. That's, it gives us the energy that we need to achieve. We're even told in, to have some kind of spiritual ambition for example, First uh, Corinthians twelve thirty one, Paul says to desire the greater gifts, and in First Timothy three one, he says anybody who sets his heart right. on church office desires a noble task. But I think that there's a there's also a problem that ambition is easily co opted, so that it it is it's easy for ambition to attach itself to envy and pride, mm-hmm. and. It's so that it becomes toxic for us. And uh, ambition, for example, I think, you know, it, 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 because it drives me, and if I find that somebody else achieves my goal, it's hard to rejoice in the fact that they achieve that goal so that envy then drives it. Or if I do achieve that goal, it's very easy for that ambition to slip into a kind of pride that sets me off against somebody else. And I think that this driving ambition has also creeped into the church so that it's created a kind of free market uh, uh, spirituality where churches are in competition with one another. We're really trying to operate like businesses. I, th- I think we're sort of, uh, uh, and that's where the drive comes in, where church members become exhausted because then they get treated like employees. You know, the uh, I don't know if you have Amway out there, but it's sort of that kind of multi-level marketing scheme, you know. So, And it's not necessarily, it's not always driven by mission, I think sometimes we can baptize our personal ambition and 
and con- and uh, consider it an expression of mission when really it's just a kind of self-seeking. Yeah. I mean, there, there is a, a fine line there once again. I mean, of the same one hand, you want to uh, be doing everything you can without regard to yourself. On the other hand, you do need to properly thank people when they praise you. And, you know, you don't want to sit down and be prepared to write a book and such and say, I hope no one else knows. That's right. I want this to be a so-so book. I sure hope this doesn't get on the Amazon bestseller list or anything. Yeah, no, you'll be thrilled if it does. That's right. And I think that's, that's okay. To, it's okay to acknowledge that. You know, I think when you're, uh, um, I think when you're re- wrestling with ambition, you know, the, you really have to look at it through the lens of mission. That is, what is it, what is it that God has called me to do? I devote myself to that. And then when it comes to success in that, I really have to, first of all, uh, uh, attribute success to God. So I don't take really, I'm not going to take this credit to myself. I also have to leave that level of success in God's hands. And that I, that I think is where the tension comes in uh, that makes ambition, turns ambition toxic for us. It's generally not, uh, it's generally in the realm of unfulfilled ambition. So the church is not growing, you know, as well as I would like it to, or my ministry is not expanding to the degree that I want it to, or I'm not succeeding uh, to the extent that I think that I should. And then I feel this sense of tension. Either I feel uh, disappointed with myself mm-hmm. or I feel angry with God because I feel like it's sort of owed to me rather than having a sense of uh, faith and trust where I am seeking the best. I'm trying to succeed as God enables me to and empowers me through his spirit. And then I leave the results to him. Yeah, in essence, I mean, we could say there's really nothing wrong with wanting to be great as a one fact. There would be something wrong if you didn't want to be great at what you do, but don't make it that the end result is you. Right. And I, you know, I think there is a sort of, um, this frustrates my students when I talk about this in the connection of pastoral ministry, but I, I think it's necessary to have a realistic sense uh, about our expectation of what our life in ministry is going to be like, you know, that I think that's was the problem with that radio ad where they're urging people to be great for God. You know, the reality is most of us are not going to be great. You know, most of us are going to be regular. We're going to be, and God delights in regular. He delights in ordinary people. He is just as accessible to the person who you you don't know who their name is. They, they're not in the limelight. You've never heard of them. They've never done anything that's really noteworthy to the world around them. He's, God is just as delighted to associate with that person as he is with a person whose name is on everybody's lips and has uh, you know, won a Pulitzer Prize or won an Oscar or won the World Series as Chicago Cubs did recently. Yeah, so, I, I give a feel you're going to rub that in to something. Yeah, you know, I'll <laughs> just say it. <saying. laughs> 
Yeah, uh, I'm honestly surprised the world hasn't come to an end after that. Uh, right. You know, I did. I almost tweeted and, uh, you know, like just before they won, I thought about tweeting out, you know, uh, what if Jesus came back right now? But that seemed too flippant. So uh, Babylon B actually had an article saying that. <laughs> but, you know, and well, that really seriously, though, it does raise in this whole area of ambition. It raises an, a, I think it raises a good point that. If I look at all the celebration in the Chicago area, and I and rightly so, you know, I think it's it's worth celebrating. But we talk about it as if it's a life changing event, like things will never be the same. Oh, you know what? The reality is, Monday will come. We'll all go back to work, and not only will things people will still be getting shot in the city of Chicago. Uh, uh, you know, we'll still have the same social problems. And the Cubs will have not yet won the World Series next year. You know, it's like it's like everything kind of goes back to zero that that uh, uh, there is, you know, there is an there is an unrealistic expectation sometimes in terms of what we think this level of success is going to do for us when, in fact, it won't. It becomes a kind of idol, becomes a kind of God where we think it will it will add to our lives, you know, whether it's that job or, uh, uh, you know, getting that position or even, even, you know, marrying that person, it will add to our lives something which it really cannot do for us. So that, that's something that only God can do for us. Well, I'd like to remind everyone, you're listening to a Deeper Warriors podcast. Right now, my guest is John Kessler, talking about the radical pursuit of rest. But if you're listening next week, we're going to be going into the area of marriage. And my guest is going to be a lady goes by the name of Jay Parker. And we're going to be talking about her book and the blog of the same name. And she's got called Hot, Holy, and Humorous. So it's going to be a very interesting show. If you've got kids, you might want to have them not be around at the time when you're listening. Because, yes, we are going to be having those kinds of discussions going on. But it's going to be good marriage enrichment from a Christian perspective. But now, let's get back to Dr. Kessler. Now, you also talk about worship in the book. And I was, again, very pleased to see how candid you were. Because, frankly, so many times when I go to worship services, I find it's really not easy to focus on things. And I think it's especially if you're very educationally trained in theology, you've got a seminary background, things like that, because... Everything sounds so basic. It's like, been there, done that, heard this all before. Um, what are we going to stop and get after we eat? What what TV shows are on when we get home this evening? I mean, that, that's what you're usually thinking about. Yeah, a couple of things shaped have shaped my thinking about this. One is, of course, uh, as I said earlier, my own my own struggle with it. Um, my own experience with it. I think in the church's culture of worship is one of the primary areas where we see our dysfunctionality in this area of uh, uh, rest coming to play in the life of the church, because it's, it's one of those contexts where you, this message is really communicated to worshipers that if you're not producing something, you really have no value to God. Um, you sometimes hear it framed this way, where the worship leader or the pastor will get up and say to people, if, you only, if you've only come here to worship, 
blah 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 you know the this the implication being if if, if you if you've only come here to worship if you're one of those people you only show up for worship you're a spiritual deadbeat you you need to get involved in a small group or you need to get involved in a service project and i was reading a um a book on uh by a theologian Joseph Pieper where he's talking he, and he's one of the uh theologians who's done some of the most foundational thinking about the idea of leisure or rest and in it he he identifies worship as a core context for leisure or rest that worship is an act of rest fundamentally and that was sort of astonishing to me because i really don't think that's been my experience you know we related to that there's this whole culture of worship where we're often basically said that uh told that worship is not about us and i understand that when we're worshiping we're worshiping god but what sometimes follows in that thinking is this assumption that worship is not for us that so therefore it shouldn't matter to you this is the message i think this communicated it shouldn't matter to you if you don't like the music of worship it shouldn't matter to you if you don't really get anything out of the sermon because the, the worship is for god well here's the trouble with that thinking first of all it's not sustainable over the long haul if repeatedly, week after week, as the church is assembling for worship, if I am really having problems approaching God because there's something about the nature of the music of worship that I find grating, or if week after week I'm just really not getting anything out of the message, it's not speaking to my heart in a powerful way, it's not uh, giving me a sense of an understanding of God's word, that's just not sustainable over the long haul. And the reality is that when it comes to worship, we are the we are the true beneficiaries in worship. We are the ones who get something out of it. God doesn't really get anything from our worship. He's pleased to accept it. He welcomes it. He invites it. He wants us to worship him. But he could spend all of eternity without our worship and not be diminished at all. You know, it's not like he... It's not like he created us because he needed our worship. Mm -hmm. So worship then is, uh, I, I think we begin to look at worship then through the framework of what it's meant to do for us. Worship is, first of all, a collective expression of the church's faith. And actually, uh, it becomes a context where the unbeliever can encounter the real, uh, the real presence of God. Um, there's an interesting passage in Corinthians where he's where Paul is correcting some of the church's practice, uh, particularly with um, the exercise of tongues and prophecy. And he describes this scenario where an unbeliever comes in, and it looks like the way that he sets it up that the assumption is that the primary function of the church's worship is for the church. And if an unbeliever finds itself in that context, what Paul proposes is the possibility that the, the unbeliever will get a sense of the reality of God's presence and will fall on his knees and say, surely God is among you. I, I think that is really the primary aim when the church assembles for worship. It is a context in which through the proclamation of the word, 
as we listen and as we address ourselves to God, we experience the reality of God's presence, which means worship isn't a performance. You know, I think sometimes we portray it as if we're sort of entertaining God with our worship. And I don't think it's a, uh, it's an attempt to sort of get his attention, you know, so we have to, we have to, uh, you know, shout loud enough or sing loud enough or worship in a way that is uh, frantic enough. Shades of first Kings 18 right here. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, well, that's exactly right. And I think that, uh, I think that the problem that we face in the way that we, the culture of worship has developed outside of this notion of rest. I think in many churches, worshipers are only valued if they produce something. And the fact is that worship as uh, this is what Joseph, Joseph Pieper says, worship as an activity is meaningful in itself. It doesn't have to serve any other purpose. And those who come to church expecting to receive something from the experience of worship are not abusing it. Mm-hmm. And so that worship is a mode of rest in which I, in which I expect to encounter God. Uh, I think that changes the way that I approach it. I think one of the problems we have today is some people talk about the sort of feminization of our culture. And that worship a lot of times is meant to draw us into what's seen as an emotion or experience. But for me, that's particularly those of us in my field, the projects field and such, we're not really emotionally centered a lot of time. And it loses us. I mean, if you play the same song over and over, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, I, can we just do some more for You have a sermon that's all application. And I'm thinking, Okay, can we get to like how this fits in with with uh, the gospel and Jesus and such? But then if I go home that evening and I <clears throat> pick up a book by, say, N.T. Wright or something and start reading, but all of a sudden that gets my my spirit really excited about biblical things and such. Yeah, yeah, and you know what's significant about the way you describe this scenario, Nick, is that there is an emotional, it's not like you don't have emotions or you don't have an emotional experience. And here's what I think is the the problem is that the, it is, first of all, the church defines worship today very narrowly. It mm-hmm. defines it primarily as musical expression. Right. Now, clearly, clearly there is a place for musical expression. You see that in both the Old and the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you ask what the place is of music, particularly in the New Testament church, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul, when he writes about the church, he talks he talks about it in terms of teaching one another, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I think the beauty of musical worship is that it links the cognitive to the affective. That is, it links the cognitive, the thinking, to emotion. And what the church is I think what the church tends to do today is not is not teach itself in an affective mode. I think what the church does is it uses music for mood management. Mm-hmm. And the problem is not the emotional component of it. The problem is not that the church is using music and therefore there's an emotional response. It is what it's is it, the problem I think is what the church is trying to do with that emotion. That is it's basically trying to create atmosphere which then it uses as a marketing device to attract people to the church rather than 
creating a, and tr- rather than trying to frame a context using the word of God expressed in music that will enable me to encounter and to experience the reality of God's presence. Mm-hmm. I, I think there is supposed to be um, emotion in the context of musical worship, but it's emotion that is connected to truth. It is truth expressed in musical form. And that's not, that's not the only dimension of worship. You know, Paul's definition of worship in Romans 12 mm-hmm. is much more expansive when he talks about offering your body as a living sacrifice. There's this overarching understanding that everything that I'm doing is a mode of worship. So if I'm talking to you now, you know, that's, that is a mode of uh, offering myself to God. If I'm working on the job, if I am cutting the lawn, when the church comes together and assembles for worship, that's a more narrow and particularly focused uh, expression of worship, the aim of which is to c- proclaim the word of God in a way that builds up the church and enables it to do uh, its own ministry in all the various contexts where God has planted individual believers in in, in their own life situation. And so, I'm, and I think the reason, part of the reason that that emotion doesn't work for us is because the church is often uh, its musical practice is just sort of top forty. That first of all, you you are sort of singing the same worship songs over and over and over again, you know, week after week. One more chorus of Just As I Am. Yeah, and it can be, and I'm not, it, it sounds like I'm criticizing a particular style, contemporary worship, I'm really not. It's just as, it can be just as tedious in a classical worship, you know, p- churches that sing hymns and gospel songs. Uh, and also there's often no real thoughtfulness about the way the worship service is structured to which connects it to the proclamation of the word so that so that uh, what happens is you sort of sing a few popular songs to prepare you know or to pave the way for the preaching of the word and then the preaching of the word doesn't really relate to what we sang and what we sang doesn't really relate to the preaching of the word and the whole order of service sometimes there's no real thoughtfulness about how, what we're trying to do with the congregation to lead them into a pattern of thinking a certain way which is what you're doing in apologetics right you're trying to help people to think rightly about god to examine their assumptions about god i think we're doing the same thing in the context of worship that we ought to be doing the same thing mm-hmm. that it is both a very intellectual and it is also a very affective experience. I'm thinking about, I used to <clears throat> speak at Sunday night services at my Bible college, and I had a friend who came with me. He was a good musician, and he would often leave a worship and such. And he shared a story with me once about some people coming to a, <clears throat> to a worship leader one time and saying, it must be very hard to have a kids are very authentically worshiping or not. And I said, no, no, that's actually the easy part. And he says, well, how can you tell us? Well, if uh, they uh, go out into the world and they bring what they've been doing in here out there and they start living changed lives, and they've been very worshiping. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful, uh, that's a wonderful observation. And it, it certainly fits 
what the church is trying to do within the context of worship, that it's not, it's not a pep rally. It, right. it is equipping for the more expansive notion of worship where we are offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. So what's happening in the worship service is directly related then to what's happening when I'm working on the job or when I'm in the neighborhood interacting with my neighbors or when I am in the home interacting with my spouse or my children. And that's really what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, uh, uh, frame a context where we will encounter God through his word. We will be built up. We will be better equipped. And also, I'm, I, I know that I'm describing in a way that sounds very passive, but, you know, when you see uh, the way the New Testament describes its worship, it's very interactive, that it isn't just, it isn't just me sort of coming in listening and leaving, leaving, you know, there is the mutual ministry that believers have to one another. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I really, one of my goals in talking about it is to try to, first of all, uh, change our thinking about it, since I, I really hate the way that we have come to describe corporate worship as the first base of Christian devotion. I do not think that that's what you see in the New Testament church. I think that you see it as a primary, I, I think it is many ways, it's the sort of the pinnacle of the church's experience. And then in that regard, I, I think I want to give people permission to just worship, that if they're just there for worship, that's just fine. <laughs> I, I think I'm, I'm thinking right now about the analogy, I usually hear about we often treat worship as if it's like a field-in station yeah. and such. And instead of, if we were being realistic about what we do is we would come in every day wearing camouflage and hard hats, realizing we are really soldiers planning a revolution in worship. It's a, it sounds a little bit, it reminds me of a wonderful passage in uh, Annie Dillard's um, memoir, An American Life, where she She's describing her and she says something very similar that, you know, that she's watching the from the balcony. She's watching the worshipers and she basically says if they knew they really had a sense of what was going on, they we'd all be wearing crash helmets. you know. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and there is that sense. I think that it, it it is reflective of this the way that we don't think in terms of rest and the way that we have taken so much upon ourselves that we really are not expecting God to show up. We do not see public worship as a context where we encounter the reality of God's presence. It is a situation. It is a, it's a meeting where we have to create the atmosphere and we feel like all the burden is on us. And so it's, it's either all the burden is on us to create the sort of emotional tone and the energy that will get all everybody charged up or all the burden is on us to sort of somehow get God's attention and hope that he's going to respond to us rather than seeing the church as the dwelling place of God through the Holy Spirit. And to recognize that I, I, I love Eugene Peterson's definition of worship where he calls it an act of attention uh, to the living God, where the church, as it comes together as the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, we expect 
to experience God's presence in a unique way as the worshiping people of God. <clears throat> I'd like to remind everyone, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is listener-supported by people like you. We very depend on you so much. And I would ask you to please consider doing especially as we get closer to the end of the year and end of the year giving comes up is to consider making an offering to us here and the way to do that, you go to our website. Yes, we do have a new one now, deeperwatersapologetics.com. Much easier to remember. Go there and there's a, a section that says help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Okay, you click the link there and it takes you to Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona, and they are the ones who are the collectors of money for us. My mother-in-law is a financial accountant specializing in clergy taxes, so she knows what she's doing with that. You make a donation regularly, as if you were making it to Risen Jesus, and then you get in touch with me or Ari or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. Make sure you get we get that donation. It will be tax deductible. And if you want to find other ways to donate to us, I have some ebooks on Amazon. We have uh, um, we have ones like a, the one I wrote, a Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed, and today's Christian. We have ones that I've co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy or Groundless. And then we have one where I did a debate about a God and natural disasters, about the problem of evil. In all those, if you buy them, some small portion of what you buy will go to us. And yes, there are other books and works. The last podcast we had with Mike and Gary Habermas together, Michael Cohen and Gary Habermas together, we are going to have another one. And we are might even have another one of that, and we are going to turn that into a book on your questions about the resurrection. And a lot of you have seen the things that I've said on marriage on Facebook, where I make a daily posting, and said, please, write a book about this. Your requests have been heard. Slowly but surely, I plan on doing that. Again, my work ethic isn't always the best. And then one more way you can donate to us is a... Guys, I'm not sure how much you've noticed this, but a lot of women really like jewelry. And we work with premier jewelers. My friend Lena Clester handles fits. And there's a link on our site. You go there and you click. And if you want to buy something, you buy and you let her or me know. And whatever you buy at price, 25% of that goes to deeper waters. So, guys, if you want to get in good with the ladies, and support a ministry at the same time, go this route. You can buy a piece of jewelry that will make up for that screw-up that you've just recently made in the past. Or you can buy a piece of jewelry that will make up for that screw-up that I know you're going to make in the future, just as I will. Now, Dr. Kessler, do you have a uh, ministry and organization you'd like to see people donate to? Well, yes, thanks for the opportunity to mention the work of Moody Bible Institute in uh, Chicago. It's part of Moody Global Ministries. And uh, the Moody Bible Institute, it it is training uh, students on undergraduate and graduate level for church ministry. And we one of the great things about particularly the undergraduate program in Chicago is that 
that student education is underwritten by our donors so that it enables them to enter ministry without a tremendous load of debt. So yeah, it'd be wonderful if uh, the Lord leads any of your listeners, if they would go over to Moody Global Ministries on uh, the web and they have an opportunity to donate if they feel so led. I just looked up, it was a moody.org, is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Now let's go back to the book about rest. And for digital age comes up and it's quite a puzzle about technology because you always say we're going to have more technology so we can have more leisure time and such usually we wind up having less time (laughs) yeah that's and you know we have actually already touched on it a little bit uh you know part of that is because the the all of the access that the digital age gives us can be terribly distracting. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, I think we have to be careful not to be Luddites about it, that it's it's easy to bash it. But the reality is, if it weren't for digital technology, I wouldn't be talking to you. You wouldn't have the ministry that you have. The, your listeners wouldn't be benefiting from all the podcasts that mm-hmm. they listen to, right? We're, right? we're taking advantage of it. But I do find that there are some unintended consequences that have profoundly shaped the culture uh, as a result of this. And and one of them is that we are now in a context where we are never alone. You know, that that's not a case where uh, problems with interruptions and difficulty finding solitude is new. Jesus even faced that. Jesus was interrupted by the crowd. The crowd intruded on his privacy more than once when you read through the Gospels. The difference, I think, is that in his case, in Jesus' case, the crowd had to make a serious effort in order to interrupt him. So, you know, they had to, if Jesus crossed the lake, they had to get in the boat and cross the lake with them. And like Jesus, we occasionally need to withdraw from the crowd. The difference with us is that we take the crowd with us. We have it in our pocket. And so, you know, we're now living in an age where people feel people have instant access to us. They feel that they should there should be immediate response. I mean, I can't tell you how many times when I'll I'll send out an email and then I'll just sit there watching the screen because I expect whoever I sent it to, to immediately respond to me. It makes it very difficult then for us to find, uh, to practice some of these disciplines of rest, the discipline of silence, the discipline of solitude. And also because we are sort of building this wall around us. And I I think often what we do with uh, uh, all of this technology is we wall ourselves off even sometimes I wall myself off from the people around me so when I'm you know I have my iPod that I listen to when I'm walking from the train to uh, my place of work part of the reason I wear that is so I don't have to deal with the people around me or people on the train Uh, or I can I think more fundamentally sometimes we're using this technology to wall ourselves off from God so that I always have noise around me. I've got the radio on, or I've got the television on, or I am listening to music, or I am, and it, so that it distracts me, so that, uh, because the reality is I don't particularly like to be in silence. 
the, the experience of silence can be discomforting, can be uncomfortable for me mm-hmm. because things begin to come to the surface. I have the inner voice, my own inner voice that talks to me. And, and often I, you know, what it's saying to me is not good right. or, uh, it, it hinders my ability to be quiet and to listen to God. So I really have to take steps to um, detach myself from the digital world. You talked a little bit earlier about how you decided not to interact on social media on the Lord's Day. And I, you know, I've been trying to practice a similar. And I found initially that it's very uncomfortable for me because when I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is check my email when I go to bed at night, just before I go to bed. I'll, and if I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm tempted to lean over and you know see if uh, I've got any messages. Yeah. Yeah. All of that, it, it creates a sort of wall of sound that, mm-hmm. that makes me deaf to, I think, often what God may be trying to say to me. There's also some science that suggests that it's changing the way that we think, that yeah. there's actually... Oh, yeah unintended consequences in terms of the way our brains are working uh, uh, that is not in our best interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I found it interesting about how to do it to avoid talking to people because as this was a show now, my wife and I both have Asperger's. And what we've found out as a result of things is that technology actually makes it easier for us to communicate with one another, because if we're in person, it can be very, very hard for us because we're so resistant and shy. But once we get behind a computer, it's much easier to communicate. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's an important balance to recognize that there is real benefit that we're getting from this technology. But it is changing the way that we think about communication. It's changing the way we think about community, even, uh, so that uh, several, many people have testified to seeing p- p- millennials in particular who are digital natives. You know, I'm not a digital native in that I, I remember when there was a time when there wasn't personal computers. My kids have never known a world without the personal computer. And sometimes when I watch them, they will be in the same room like my husband and his uh, my, my uh, son and, and, and his wife. My son and his wife will be sitting next to each other on the couch, texting each other. <laughs> you know? yeah. So it's like, look, you could look each other in the eye and have a conversation, which it isn't necessarily a bad thing, except if it totally redefines what we mean by communication, totally redefines uh, what we mean by community in a way that does not reflect a biblical notion it will be problematic. And there is something about the embodied experience, the incarnational experience that I think is important to God that you lose in a digital world, you know, and it's also a world that's very prone to image management. That is I, you know, I can put myself out there and I can pretty much determine the image that you see, the way that I present myself may not necessarily be the real me, uh, may not be entirely honest. In fact, I can completely disguise myself and pretend to be somebody different. Mm-hmm. And so there, there is something about flesh and blood uh, life together 
that is important to God and important to the life of the church that we need to hold on to without necessarily completely throwing away all the digital advances that we enjoy. I didn't grow up in the digital age, but I did grow up in the gaming age. And my wife and I are still part of that. And something I've noticed when I thought about this is that in the past, if you were playing a game and you wouldn't know how to get past the boss or find a treasure or such, you had to go look for all your strategy guides, find something that you could. Now, you just type in Google who it is that you're fighting, what you're looking for. Oh, look, there's a video of someone doing that and such, and you find it. And that's it. I mean, for us, when we were growing up, we have the excitement of discovery and trying to figure things out and such. And, I mean, I've been told twice this week, once I overheard, once someone told me directly that today, kids are growing up, they are removing, I don't know, from their vocabulary, and they're replacing it with, let me Google that for you. Yeah. But I also think it's changing the way, and I don't think this is. Uh, I'm not. Sh- I don't think this is really a good thing. It's changing the way that we think. It's changing the way that we we study. Um, you know, I find with working with students that they don't really know how to do research. They don't. They're not comfortable working with books. They're. It's very much a Google age where. They look for a quick answer. There's a sense of impatience uh, and not wanting to think things through. And when you th- when you look at the work of apologetics, which is very much about not just throwing out f- throwing facts out there about the go- about Christ and the gospel and the reasons to believe in God, it is about a way of thinking. You know, when uh, when Paul when Paul challenges the philosophers on Mars Hill, he doesn't just give them facts. He actually, he asks them to analyze the way that they're thinking about God. So in this, in this digital culture, I think we're losing uh, the patience to, to think uh, carefully about the way we think. And we also are losing, this has definitely been uh, demonstrated by, uh, research that digital culture is shortening our attention span uh, so that it's I find in my own life it's hard for me to read you know to without I tend to read more piecemeal mm-hmm. a chapter here a chapter here there I, I may read three or try to read three or four books at the same time I'm multitasking <laughs> in terms of my reading instead of engaging in uh, a sustained leisurely study and reflection. And uh, we're losing that. uh, I think we're losing that ability to do that, which is problematic if you're trying to help people think. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think in the work of apologetics, you know, that's what you're really trying to do. You're trying to engage people in a discipline of thoughtfulness. I, I find, for instance, that one of the main areas I've somehow chosen to interact in so much, and I don't know why, because it can drive you insane, is dealing with Jesus mythicists, the people who say Jesus never even existed, which, yeah. as we all know, is a totally crank theory, but now in our digital age, you can say, oh, look, I just did a Google search, and here is this website that's got all this information, and rather than sit down and have a conversation with this person, Everything in this site is taken for granted. Now I have to respond to everything. Yeah, I think that it's that assumption. 
it has something to do, I think it has something to do with our carrying over into the digital culture assumptions about what's in print. You know, if it's in print, it must have authority. If it's, so I see it in print, it's on the web page, it must be true. Uh, and so that it becomes a, a place where all kinds of inaccurate information is proliferating. At the same time, I, again, I think we have to be balanced. You know, uh, it's been a great boon to the work of evangelism and apologetics. It's a huge yeah. audience, right? You yeah. you have an opportunity to talk to people, to reach out to people that 50 years ago you never even would have exactly. envisioned. Yeah. So I, I recognize that. I, I don't want to, again, sound like uh, a Luddite, you know, that I don't, that I don't like I don't like the culture, but maybe that I like it too much. <laughs> 50 years ago, I would not be able to have the ministry that I'm having a way of oh. getting my word out and such. And, and the problem isn't really the technology. The problem is how we're using things and such. I, mean, I had an uncle who passed away recently. And I think it's, uh, I encourage you to do is wherever you, you're doing your try blogging, some because imagine what could happen if you leave a blog just about your life and your children and your grandchildren and your great grandchildren can look later mm -hmm. and see how you lived your life back in the day and such as a gift you can give to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and at the same time, I think blogging culture is uh affecting the way that we do write, the way that we talk about ourselves. You know, if you, if you, blogging forces you to write in small bits and pieces, if you're going to, at least the, if you're going to try to blog for an audience, you know, they generally tell you, you, you don't want to have really long posts so that you lose the capacity to to write uh, uh, over the long haul, you know, to write larger pieces, to reflect at leisure. And um, we, there may be something lost there. There's also, and here I'm, you know, I'm maybe I'm speaking hypocritically because I, you know, we're losing the culture of personal letters. I have a friend who writes personal letters. I, I don't think I've written a personal letter in how well, I can't even remember. It's been decades. Certainly uh, it's been decades since I have written a handwritten letter. Mm -hmm. So um, it is, it is changing us in the way that we relate to one another and communicate to one another. Yeah. A lot of people would be thankful if they don't get personal letters from me because uh, kind of the same <laughs> joke said about a, uh, like, like my best man said at my wedding in a toast since he's been in the projects also and we've had our interactions with Mormons he said my handwriting requires the gift and power of God to translate but see I think that's that is a part of the cultural shift that we don't we don't need handwriting as much as we used to so that you lose and it's not a new thing. You know, if you compare the way people wrote in the 1800s to the way people wrote in the, you know, 1900s and the 2000s, you can definitely see a decline overall in the artistry of it, the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I maybe someday we won't write at all. We'll just we'll only be touching buttons to, uh, you know, to type out what we want to say to people. 
there's a, Neil Postman always, uh, I think, is helpful to help us to reflect critically on the advances in technology. And he, he basically, uh, one of his main principles is that technology gives with one hand and takes away with another, that there are always unintended consequences with every technological advancement. And also that they have, they come with an ethos. It's not just the, the benefit that you get from what the technology does, that there is embedded in the technology a way of thinking and a way of living that is not always good for us. And that one of the things that we are not doing is we're not critical enough when it comes to adopting technology. That's certainly true when it comes to the church. You know, we just adopt whole hog without asking how it's changing the way we see ourselves, the way we think about our mission, the way we view ourselves as community. And now we're getting to where we're going to be starting wrapping things up before too long. So let's talk some about wrapping things up ultimately. What does death have to do with this to end on a happy note? Well, I think that death is uh, ultimate rest, biblically. You know, it is, it is in the scriptures, it is final rest. It is the rest that we are tending toward uh, that we don't really think about it. In fact, we think about it even less today because the focus of the church seems to be so present oriented and we're using kingdom language in a way that uh, focuses on what God is doing in the here and now without really looking at it in the future where you see that the the vision of the church in the New Testament, in the scriptures, really seems to be focused on the future. Also, I think we're living in a culture that marginalizes death, that we're in a state of denial, which is a little bit odd to say when you look at the media around us, when you see the movies and television, and even you talked about the gaming culture, when even in a gaming culture where we seem to be surrounded by death, but actually um, when you look at the way death is portrayed, it is portrayed graphically, but not realistically. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, I think, when it comes to, for example, gaming culture, where, you know, you can die repeatedly and then yeah. come back. When you see the way that death is handled in our culture at large, where somebody dies and they're immediately removed from our presence, handed over to the professional, so that, and not that that's necessarily a bad thing, Um as opposed to the days when, when somebody was died, they were laid out in the home. And, but what happens is then we become, we, it makes it easy for us to, first of all, be in a state of denial about the inevitability of death. Uh, and that inevitability of death is one of the primary tools that God uses to make us aware of our need for Christ that uh, it, it is the ultimate reminder of the reality, the universality and the reality of sin, because all have sinned, everybody dies. Mm-hmm. And it is that blunt wall that you run into that shows you that you need uh, righteousness that comes from Christ. You also see it affecting this marginalization of death. You affect, it affects the way the church uh, relates to death. Um, Thomas Long has uh, written about the way, what he calls uh, the way funerals talk. He says, the frank acknowledgement of the pain of death 
and firm hope in the resurrection of the body is being replaced by a popular liturgy of what he calls vague, body-defying, death-defying blather, where we're not dealing with uh, both the reality of death, the dignity of the human body um, in the way that we're in the way that we're treating it, and ultimately forgetting that God's hope in rep- that he's given us in redemption is an embodied hope, that the final piece of redemptive experience is reunion with the flesh, right. a different kind of flesh, but that's the ultimate hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm uh, thinking about that better. I have one of my friends post something about uh, James White having an article about how a biblical sexual morality is the last hill to die on. We were discussing what that meant. He said, why not the resurrection such? And I thought, you know, maybe he just means that if we lose a spell of culture, we lose it all. And one of the things I says, you know, if we really understood the resurrection, we'd understand sex better because That's the resurrection right. does say this body matters. That's right. There is a definite connection in, in that, uh, in fact, Paul really, when you see the way Paul describes in Romans 1, that downward spiral in human thinking where they suppress the truth about we, humanity suppresses the truth about God that then changes the way they view themselves so that they begin to see themselves differently, which then ultimately becomes expressed in distortions, not only in what the way they think about God, but the way they relate to one another sexually. There's a direct connection between that. Yeah. And I think you're right also about what you said about how we can marginalize death because we're so scared of death is something unnatural. We had a friend pass away back in August and we went to Tennessee for a funeral. And I remember we gotten done with service. We were in the, this mirror area together, and I wanted to go and see if I could find something else. And I went into the room where the, uh, the service had been, and the, the casket was gone and everything. And I remember having this anger swearing up in me at that point. And speaking in the whole gaming terms, I was kind of sitting there for a while thinking, okay, death you got the wrong one here. Okay, this guy, it wasn't his time. Hey, how about you and I, let's go, let's have a battle. Come on, let's deal with this right now. I mean, it's totally dumb to think that way, I think, in many ways, but I think it's also pretty real. That's how we treat that. We we, we want to challenge it head on. And it, it tells us that death, on the one hand, it's a natural experience in that it is it's universal, but it is unnatural in the sense that it is something that was introduced into the human race as a result of sin. It's not part of the original human design. I think that that's also uh, the sense we have. That's the sense of outrage that we have whenever we encounter it. When we see somebody that we care about, somebody that we love who has died, there is that sense of, uh, you know, in, it's we're we're shocked by it, I, and I don't think it's. Uh, I've seen this reaction in people who have had loved ones who lived into their 80s and or 90s, and they die. There's still this sense of shock and outrage that that person is gone. I, I, it's an echo of Eden to me. It's an echo of the original state before the fall, 
where we we know instinctively that that isn't the way God initially created us. That is why this sense of outrage and uh, the sense of fear that we have ultimately points us to Jesus Christ as God's remedy for death and the work of the cross and the um, the hope of resurrection. I think that's what death is intended to do. That it's in, and it's also you know when Paul talks about the the universality of death, the universality of the guilt that we all share in Adam. He he also points to it as uh, it is. There's a hidden blessing in that, if you could describe it that way, and that that's what opens the door so that all who trust in Christ can experience eternal life, can move from death to life. Since death passed on to all from one man, Adam, the righteousness of one man, Jesus Christ, can be applied to all those who put their faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I keep thinking that, that, you know, there's a commercial that my wife and I have seen a few times. It's got a, I think it's about people with heart disease. And it says, can you have the song tomorrow playing? And there it says, for people with this condition, there is no guarantee about tomorrow. And I'm watching, I'm thinking, no one has a guarantee yeah. about tomorrow. And we, we tend to take things so lightly and such as if, yeah, it's a guarantee. I mean, we shouldn't be living in fear we could die today, but we should always have that awareness. And that's why whenever my wife goes out anywhere, or I go out somewhere without her, it's always say a kiss, I love you, before we give a kiss and say I love you before we go. Not have any problems with doing that anyway. And then we go away because you never know what could happen. Yeah, and I think on the, another way to look at it is on uh, at the same time, we all do have the promise of tomorrow, but we don't all have the promise of the same kind of tomorrow in that, um, you know, after death, it's appointed to all of us to die once. And then after that, the judgment and that there is an eternity that looms before us beyond physical death. And it is not the same eternity for everybody. And what makes the difference is the person and work of Jesus Christ and our relationship to him. Mm -hmm. Those who are in Christ have the hope of eternal life. They have a hope of an eternal rest, which is not floating around in the clouds, you know, and and, uh, 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 playing the harp. It is is an eternity of purpose. It is an eternity of serving God in the way that we have always wanted to serve him. But for those who don't, no, Christ, those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ and accepted the righteousness that he gives as a gift, that eternity is an eternity of separation from God. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that is one of the reasons why we have this blunt, repeated reminder of the reality of our sin and our need for Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. What do you want people ultimately need to get out of your book they pick it up? Well, I think most, uh, first and foremost, I want them to hear Christ's invitation to come to him and to receive rest. That rest is, before rest is a practice in the Christian life, 
rest is a state of being, that when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, we enter into rest. That means we cease from our own works as a means of trying to achieve a right relationship with God, and we receive the righteousness that Christ gives to us and the acceptance that he offers us as a gift. And everything that we do in the Christian life, all the service that we do for him, then grows out of the reality of that rest so that we are energized by the power of God. We let go of this um, effort to try to establish a relationship with God on our own terms, and we allow him to accept us. Uh, that, that more than anything else is what I want people to hear. And, you know, in the same way, also just take it easy. Everything doesn't depend on you. That's right. Do what you can and then just leave the rest to God. Mm-hmm. That's right. I sometimes think in evangelism, we've often taken an approach that I call mission impossible Christianity. All right. We've got some lost people over there. We have to go. We have to talk to them. We have to get them converted, a term I hate to use, right now, this moment, because it all depends on us. Well, no, it doesn't. We should go out there. We, yeah, we should try and talk to the people and such. But if they're not willing to accept, we don't lay awake at night worrying about it. That's their choice. And we just have to leave that to God and say, he could send someone else to do the rest of our work that we've just got started. Yeah, we do sometimes worry about it when if it's our, if it's our own family. You know, I I mean, I I understand that anxiety. I have I have kids who uh, uh, you know that I pray for, but you're right. Ultimately, I'm looking I am looking at God because if we believe that salvation is of the Lord, if salvation comes from the Lord, if God's the author of our salvation, then. I'm really looking to him to bring that gift to those who need it. I'm his instrument. I'm just his instrument. But I really have to depend on uh, him to do it. And he's way bigger than I am. You know, yeah. he's powerful. He's He can handle a burden in a way that I'm not able to. Yeah, and he's, in fact, got more concerned about the problem. That's right. He's done a whole lot more work than we have to help resolve it. That's right. Well, I don't think there's really enough time to get into no questions, so I just like to ask if uh, we have a question about the topic, but just our final wrap-up questions we can do. Um, you have a, a blog, a website, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you and your work. I have a website. It's uh, johnkessler.com, J-O-H-N-K-O-E-S-S-L-E-R.com. I do once. I do occasionally blog. I have to admit, uh, I've I've sort of fallen out of practice with it. But I do have um, some blog posts there, and uh, your people can go there and find out a way to contact me if they'd like to. And do you have any uh, final words you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today? Well, I think uh, what I'd say to uh, those of you who are interested in apologetics, keep. Keep doing your good work. Keep uh, helping people to think about Jesus Christ and uh, help them to think about the way they think about God and uh, receive the rest that Christ offers you as a gift. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Yeah, thanks, Nick. It's great to talk to you. I can remind everyone that next week we have Jay Parker on talking about her book and her website of the same name, Hot 
holy, and humorous, so get set to have some good talk about marriage. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.